today we'll be talking about one of my favorite topics to preach on, and that is the topic of worship, specifically throne room worship. Now, for many of us, especially if we've been raised in the church, worship, what we equate to worship is this musical interlude, like a prelude to worship service. It's like an opening act, kind of, this moment of well-orchestrated musical entertainment, but it is so much more than that. Now, there's a reason why we encourage people to come early and on time, you know, for our services, because our worship time is not a buffer for people to get there. It's, it's, this is the main event. Worship is the main event. Worship is the act of turning away from so many things that we focus on on a daily basis, and we turn our gaze heavenward. Worship is approaching Jesus and breaking our alabaster jar at his feet. Worship is a turning point in our lives when we choose to take our eyes off of lesser things and we remind ourselves of what is better, what is our better portion. And sometimes we wonder, you know, while we live here on earth, what heaven will be like, what we'll do, what we'll see. Um, And sometimes we look forward to being with Jesus and we don't realize that the most heavenly thing that we could do here on earth is worship. The most heavenly thing, most in accordance with the blueprints of heaven, is to worship. The most heavenly thing we can do on this side of eternity is worship. So as we look through uh, through this passage, Revelation 4, where we get to see the most unveiled, unfiltered, raw depictions of God and his glory, we'll also get a glimpse of what true worship, worship in spirit and in truth is supposed to look like. So Revelation 4, let me give you a little bit of context for this passage. This passage comes out of the pages of the Bible. It it comes from a very different environment from what we would consider, quote unquote, worship conducive environment. You know, like when we're trying to worship, we feel like, oh, things need to be just right. Things need to be perfect. The temperature, the lighting, the sound, like all of it needs to be perfect. And only then I can worship God without anything distracting me, with nothing disruptive. And only then can we feel like we give God worship. But this passage is actually very different. Much like the book of Philippians, this passage from historical accounts, we know that the apostle John This is somebody who walked with Jesus while Jesus was here on earth, John the Beloved. He is writing this in exile from an island called Patmos. And it's not a vacation. It's not there, you know, for, you know, to enjoy the beach or the view. He's there as punishment for his work for the gospel, very likely in a labor camp, maybe even uh, at the bottom of a mine shaft. So we're talking about the Apostle John exiled from a place of uh, great uh, fame and great influence. Now he's been exiled into oblivion, far away from those he's sown into for decades, very likely towards the end of his life, maybe around his 80s. And he by then had outlived every other apostle because they were all martyred for the gospel except for him. And the reason why he wasn't martyred is because he was sent to labor camp, basically. So he didn't escape 
unscathed, right? He had been exiled to a forgotten corner of the Roman Empire to live the rest of his life in obscurity. His glory days, quote-unquote, of leading the church and seeing the fruitfulness of the gospel, turning over entire cities, all of that is behind him at this point. And despite all of this, we read in Revelation 1.9, Apostle John simply says this, I, John, your brother and partner, in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God. So because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And then it goes on to say what this loud voice said. He was in the middle of his exile, in the middle of this punishment that he was given for preaching the gospel and preaching the name of Jesus. He finds himself in the spirit on the Lord's day. Translation, it was a Sunday and I was going to worship God. Even if it was exile. Even if it was in a labor camp, it doesn't matter. It was Sunday and I was going to worship God. I was in the spirit. He was in the spirit on the Lord's day in the middle of his exile and loneliness and hardship. And he was worshiping and praying to Jesus. He was communing with him in the hardest time of his life. And it is there as he's crying out to Jesus, as he is engaging in worship that Jesus himself basically sneaks up on him. He hears a voice loud like a trumpet behind him. And if you see in your Bibles, that's when the red letters begin, right? Jesus himself sneaks up behind him. Have you ever had a moment of worship when you're minding your own business and you're worshiping Jesus, you're focusing on him, and Jesus, you know, sneaks up on you in very unexpected ways? When it was a very unplanned interruption in your worship, that is basically what is happening here. In this passage from today in Revelation 4, we see that after Jesus, after this voice like a trumpet, speaks to John about these seven churches, the apostle John, he looks up and unexpectedly sees an open door standing in heaven. This open door and the voice of Jesus, like a trumpet, says these incredible words. Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. This is Jesus talking to someone who is in a labor camp, probably alone, abandoned at the, you know, just hit rock bottom in his life. And this incredible, incredible invitation to come up here. I have something to show you. So today, as we talk about what worship is, I'm going to go over three points. The first thing that worship is, it is the call to come and to see. This is something that I always say, and I'm going to say it once again today. If we were to distill Um, what the meaning, what the definition of worship is, it is simply this. And this is the simplest definition of worship you'll ever get. It is a response to revelation. Worship is a response to revelation. It is not this, you know, in a vacuum kind of action. 
It is initiated by God as he reveals himself to us, reveals, he shows himself to be who he is, and we in turn respond to that revelation. The call to worship is a call to come and see. This means that if we are not worshiping rightly, it means we are not seeing rightly. It's not a problem of our mouths. It's a problem of our eyes, if that makes any visual sense. We're not seeing God rightly, and so the worship that comes out of our mouth isn't right. This means, if this is right, that the greatest antidote to apathy and discouragement and self-focused anxiety, whatever it is, the greatest antidote to that is to take our eyes off of ourselves for a moment, take one step towards God, and once again be reminded of who he is. That's all worship is. We're taking a step forward and coming closer to God. The best way to work through your worries over, say, for example, financial issues, or you're searching for work, and you are trying to work through the anxiety of not knowing what's around the corner, the best thing you can do in that place is to take one step towards God and see that he is a provider, that he is a generous father, that he is a good God. He's not a stingy, penny-pinching, you know, let me see you squirm a little bit kind of God. He exudes generosity, He isn't a neglectful father. He's not an absent parent. He's not an emotionally distant God. He knows our needs even before we can verbalize them. He knows the weakness of our frame, the hurts of our past, the struggles of our present. He knows all this, and yet he is a good provider, a generous God, a good father. When we take a step forward and fix our eyes on who God is, All of a sudden, all those other things that plagued our minds, all those other things that really brought so much stress and so much anxiety, we're able to look beyond that and be reminded of who God is. And that's what we call worship. In this passage that we read from Revelations 4, at the center of it all is this one who sits on the throne. And that is the first thing that Apostle John's eyes jump to. We see, we hear a voice come up here. He walks through this door and then he sees one who is seated on a throne who is, you know, and then he begins to describe. This is not, you know, when you walk into a room, your eyes go straight to whatever it is, the point of focus in that room. So for example, in a room like this, it's very natural if you're unfamiliar with a room like this, you walk in, the first thing you see is where the lights, where are the lights shining? Usually like on stage or something. Or if you walk into a living room, someone's living room, you realize what people's priority is in their living room, depending on how, um, you know, furniture is arranged. So for example, do you guys watch Friends growing up? It's not a great biblical, you know, example, but... you know, there's this episode where he, you know, Joey's talking to somebody, Joey, uh, he's talking to somebody and, you know, he's talking about TV shows and how famous he is. And then the person he's talking to says, oh, I don't own a TV, basically saying, like, I don't know who you are. You're supposed to be this actor, right? I don't own a TV. And then Joey's response is really funny. He says, you don't own a TV? What's all your furniture pointed at? Isn't that so, like, true when you think about it? 
wherever your TV is in your living room, everything is like catered towards that. Everything is focused towards that. Everything is arranged in such a way so that you can enjoy this TV the most. And that's often how we arrange our living rooms. In the same way, obviously, we're not talking about friends, but when we're talking about the throne room of heaven, everything is pointed in one direction. There's an epicenter, there's a center in the throne room, and that is the one who sits on the throne. There's the first thing that catches his eye the moment that he steps into the throne room of heaven. And in his description, the apostle John, it's, you know, when you read it, it's very descriptive, right? It sounds like, When somebody's trying to, you know, like, think of a word like borrowing language and searching for words to describe something that cannot be described, right? The lights, the colors, the the glory emanating from this being in the center are so mind-blowing that he's like, it's kind of like, it was kind of like Jasper. It was kind of like Carnelian. It looked like an emerald rainbow. It looked like a sea of glass. It's like he's trying to find human words to describe something that is totally other, totally divine. And it's like his words fail him. He can, he can just grasp at these metaphors to give us a picture of this one who's seated at the throne. He doesn't know how to describe it other than it's like these reddish, Jasper and Carnelian are like these reddish gemstones, these reddish shining gemstones that glow and dazzle. And he's so brilliant that a rainbow appears, you know, like when you, you know, you use your phone camera and there's like a light glare and and it shows kind of like sometimes a rainbow, sometimes like a, I don't know, there's a probably a technical word for that. When there's a source of light, it kind of shines on your lens and it, kind of shows you like an arc am i making any sense no yes okay okay anyway it's probably because i take bad pictures but that's what i see all the time it's almost like that this person that was sitting on the throne wasn't just emanating he was light there wasn't a spotlight on him he was the spotlight he was light he was a source of illumination and everything around him kind of was just shining forth from the light that he was emanating. I'm, you know, one example of this, I was trying to think of what would an emerald rainbow, what would a sea like glass, what would that look like? Um, Last year, sometime last year, I went to Jeju for the first time. You haven't been there. I've been living here for like nine, 10 years and I had never been to Jeju. This was my first time. Thank you, COVID. And so when I went there, I saw the Jeju seas for first time. And it is, depending on where you go, right? If you go to one of these beaches that are pretty well known, like very white sand, and then you look out into the horizon and the sea is a very interesting color. It's like an emerald color, like turquoise. And there's moments when, you know, if it's overcast, it kind of like dims it a bit. But if you go there on a sunny day and the sun is hitting just right, the turquoise, that blue is so like lifelike. It almost like hurt. It pierces your eyes. It's that intense. That's, that's kind of like the way that I'm thinking it might've looked like it's like color. Yes, but it doesn't do it justice. It's like color that's alive that like penetrates your retinas. Like it just gets imprinted in your eye, in the back of your eyeballs, like that kind of feeling. And that's the person that we're seeing seated on the throne. It's like words fail the apostle John as he's trying to describe what he's seeing. And it's a complete 
sensory overload for him. Complete sensory overload. Sights, sounds, thunder, lightning coming from the throne. These waves of glory that explode from the center and ripple through the throne room. And then he sees the 24 elders. He sees the four living creatures that are covered in eyes. We're not going to get into too much detail about these four living creatures, but I'm going to just pose this thought for you. When I was, you know, in ninth grade biology, right, we were talking about organs of the body and all of that. And you know that our skin is considered an organ, right? It's a sensory organ. And I remember thinking, like, how interesting is it that our entire bodies are enveloped? They're covered in this organ that is sensitive to touch, is sensitive to pain, and is sensitive to temperature. I just found that so interesting, The fact that we are covered in something that is designed to feel the environment around us. Now, if, you know, it is so sensitive, if you were to blow on your, the back of your hand, you'd feel it. You feel a gust of wind in the back of your hand. You feel when the temperature's not right in the room. You feel, you know, like when you've been outside and you feel something crawling over your foot or something and you feel that and it kind of freaks you out even that we're so sensitive our entire bodies are covered in this organ that are that is designed to sense the environment around us when we're looking at these four living creatures imagine that it's not like your skin isn't just sensitive to like touch and temperature and pain but it's sensitive to sight like you could see with your skin That's kind of like the picture that we get of these four living creatures. They are covered in eyes, covered everywhere, like every surface of their body is covered in eyes. And something that would dazzle us with just two eyes popped into the front of our head. Can you imagine standing in front of raw glory and you are covered in eyes? Like that would, I don't know, I think we would short circuit. Like we just couldn't handle that. But it's like these four creatures... They were designed, the one thing that they were designed for is to take in the glory of God. Like the the eye over here seizes glory and becomes overwhelmed. And then this eye pops open and becomes overwhelmed. This eye down here pops. Can you imagine being covered in eyes and be glaring right at the center of this God who is pure light and pure glory? We see these four living creatures that are designed to worship God as they behold his glory. And it is this, this ability to see the beauty and the glory of God that fuels their day and night cry of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. I remember first reading this passage and thinking, don't they get tired? Like, I, I can max, like, sing for maybe two hours for a K-1 set or something. But after two hours, I'm done. I've run out of things to say. Like, uh, my voice starts giving out. And I don't think I can go beyond two hours. But these are creatures that day and night, they worship this God. And what fuels this day and night, you know, worship is this day and night beholding the glory of God. Just when they think they're finished, another eye, op- eye opens and they see another facet of God's glory and they can't help but to respond. I thought I knew what I was saying, but I think he's holy, holy, holy. This is a God that's like no other. He's set apart. He's completely other. He is holy, holy, holy. 
He who was and is and is to come. This is a picture that we see of what happens around this throne room. And although we are not covered with eyes front and back, we're not designed that way. We are designed to behold God's glory. We are designed in such a way, our hearts are designed in such a way that we react when we see God's beauty, God's kindness, God's compassion, his majesty, his worth, his power. Whenever we get glimpses of that in our lives, we're designed, we are rigged, we are wired that way to respond in worship. And so the call to worship, it isn't just this activity where like, okay, there's some lyrics slapped up there and I'm just going to try the best I can to follow the song. The call to worship is a call to come and see a God who's worthy of our worship. It starts with coming and seeing. And from that place, we can say that the call to worship, second, is the call to adore and to declare. Like I said, worship is a response to revelation. It starts when you fix your eyes on the one who is worthy. And from there, you respond in adoration and declaration. Now, let me give you this example. Some of you guys who know very little about me. Um, I was born and raised in Chile, right? Um, I lived there all my life. And then when it was time for me to go to college, so when I was 18, I was trying to figure out where to go. And I ended up at a school called uh, UNC, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Does that ring any bells? Michael Jordan, yeah. So we were a huge sports school. That's where he went to college, Michael Jordan way, way back in the day. We are really, really big sports school. And especially when it came to college basketball, it was insane. When March Madness rolls around, that's all you talk about. That's all you think about. You, you, you know, you schedule everything around that. I didn't know very much about UNC until I got there. And I realized like, wow, this is this is super intense. And like, you have to love the Tar Heels with all your heart and you have to hate Duke with all your heart. Duke is like a rival school. Like we have to hate Duke with all our hearts. And that was what it meant to be, you know, a good student there. Right. Um, it was really being part of this. And while I was there in the, you know, I was there for college and then post-college as well. Within those years, we were actually, uh, NCAA, This means nothing to people who don't follow college basketball. But NCAA champions, two years, 2000, I think it was five and 2009, those two years, we were champions. So we went through, you know, like all the, you know, all the eliminations and all of that. And then we got to that last game. And then when you get to that game and you finally win the trophy, like everything erupts and it's like chaos, right? And here's the interesting thing. It was so intoxicating that it didn't matter how reserved you were as a person. It didn't matter how you were brought up. It didn't even matter if you were like me. I'm a Chilean who knew nothing about, you know, UNC basketball until I got there. It honestly didn't matter. In that moment, even if you were naturally subdued and not very expressive, when it was game time and we gathered to watch these games, even the quietest person in the room will become this trash-talking machine, right? And everybody becomes an emotional mess. Everybody holds their breath for every free throw. Uh, when, you know, our hearts would be racing whenever, you know, the game was really close. And when there was a victory, especially when it was against Duke, right? I say that as like a dirty word, Duke. Um, 
room, especially when there was a victory against Duke, it's like the whole room would just explode with cheering and celebration. People who were at the game, they would rush the court. People who weren't, we would find our way to our main street and we would trash the place, basically. It's like, you know, everybody would just convene in this one place and party, right? Um, I was not very good at partying, but I was there still. Um, But my point is, it was so intoxicating, this feeling of like, we're, we're almost there, we're almost there, and we make it, and then just like, Everything erupts, and it doesn't matter if you're very reserved and like, oh, I, I don't like to speak out. It didn't matter in that moment. Everybody was yelling at the top of their lungs and, you know, like throwing things and whatever. It was that kind of celebration. This, rem- this is just one picture, one instance that points us to the fact that it doesn't matter how we are, you know, personality-wise built. We are all made to worship and worship expressively it it i think often when we think about worship we think of like oh, i'm just not that kind of person you know like i i you disqualify yourself from like i'm just not it doesn't mean you need to be a slobbering mess on the floor every time but it means that you bring your heart into it it means that in moments of deep reflection you deeply reflect in moments of exuberation you lift your hands and worship that's how we were designed to be whether it is when it comes to college basketball and especially when it comes to God you and I were made to worship we're not just called to internally rejoice like oh our God is so good you know we're not just called to internally rejoice but also to externally celebrate to expressively declare to ascribe worth and honor and glory to something else or someone else john piper he puts it this way proclaiming his praise proclaiming god's praise somehow enhances and completes the sense of enjoyment It's one thing to just internally appreciate or contemplate something for its worth and for its beauty. But it's next level when you enjoy it and you treasure it so much that it fills your heart. And out of the overflow of the heart, your mouth speaks and you begin to praise him. That is what worship is. We're called to adore and we're called to declare. This is why. This is why we're geared this way. This is why we are wired this way. Let me give you one more reason why declaring is important. The declaration part of worship. We need to be reminded over and over again of who God is, especially when we are not feeling it. How many times has it happened to you when you walk into the place of worship completely discouraged or like really, really worried about something else and your mind just can continues to turn over all the things that you need to do or all the things that are out of your control and you're just plagued with worry and you come into the place of worship and you know you kind of have to sing along when there's lyrics there especially so you begin to sing along and somewhere along repetition number 10 you begin to realize the words that you're singing are true that 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 is true that you're proclaiming it's almost like you need to declare it even before you feel it you're preaching to yourself at that point You're shifting your heart and your mind. You're aligning your thoughts, the truth of who God is. And there's so much power in declaring who God is, especially when we don't feel like it. I remember when I was going through a really difficult time, um, 
you know, I, I was, I had like all these decisions to make and there's so many different things that could go wrong in that moment. And I remember walking into a service one of those days and we were singing, God, I look to you. And that song is just so good in that, like, there's no wiggle room. It's like, God, I look to you. I won't be overwhelmed. <laughs> right. Give me vision to see things like you do. God, I look to you. You're where my help comes from. Give me wisdom. You know just what to do. And then comes the declaration, I will love you, Lord, my strength. I will love you, Lord, my shield. I will love you, Lord, my God, forever, all my days. I will love you. It ends with this defiant cry of, he will reign. Hallelujah, our God reigns. Doesn't matter what you're going through. Doesn't matter what circumstances you're facing. He reigns and he reigns still. It's like those kind of moments where it's so important for us to declare who God is and come into the place of worship, not disengaged. But in order for us to shift to where we need to be, we need to adore and we need to declare. Now, last thing that the call to worship is, is the call to be changed. No, the call to change and be changed. The call to change and be changed. Because worship changes things. It changes the situation. It moves the heart of God. And it leaves the worshiper a different person. Worship changes things. Worship can change a situation where there is no way. And you begin to declare the praises of God. Something changes in the situation. In the words of Jeremy Riddle, who's a very well-known worship leader, he says, Wherever God is worshipped in spirit and in truth, His kingdom is established, his freedom reigns, and the works of the devil are destroyed. Pure praise has always been a weapon of mass destruction to the kingdom of darkness. Let me read that last part one more time. Pure praise, praise when you're giving your heart and soul to the Lord. Pure praise has always been a weapon of mass destruction to the kingdom of darkness. It affronts the enemy. Often in my life, I find it so easy to praise God when things are going well. But it's in the moment when things aren't going well where I'm challenged. When I'm in a valley season, it's precisely in that moment that I want my song to be heard by God first. But second, by the enemy as well. My desire is that the enemy would find me worshiping in my valley season, in my desert season, that he would come looking for me, expecting to find me a discouraged mess, distant from the Lord, and he would find me worshiping God in that place. That is my desire. There's a reason why the Israelite armies would set up military formation for a battle, and their first line of defense at the very front, it's, it isn't the people with the heaviest artillery, It's not the people with the horses and the spears and the most advanced weaponry. It was the worshipers that went first. They would send forth a wave of worshipers that would declare the victory of God, the triumph of Yahweh, the greatness of the God that they serve, and that would win them the battle. That is not just the approach that they're called to have whenever it comes to battles. It's also ours. Worship is our first line of defense. 
When we feel attacked by the enemy, when we feel plagued by lies of condemnation, we feel discouraged or alone or uneasy about what is happening in our lives, when we feel like things are spinning out of control, our first line of defense should be worship. Worship changes things. And it doesn't just change the situation that you're in. Second is it moves the heart of God. Now, this is something that I could explain as best as I can, but it will still never make sense. We're talking about a God who has everything that he needs. He has no lack. He's fully loved within the Trinity. He has no need for us. And yet his heart is moved when weak and broken people like us come to him and offer him an offering of praise. I don't understand the mechanics behind that. I don't know why God would make it that way. But if the Bible is true, we see over and over and over again how God's heart is blessed by the worship of his people. It does something to his heart. Even if we feel like it's not doing very much. Even if it feels like, well, nobody's listening. I'm just here in my room worshiping God. doesn't make any difference to anybody. It is precisely in those moments that we need to remember. This is not for anybody else. This is for God. And his heart is moved when I come to him with an offering, a praise. God's heart. A God who knows no beginning, a God who knows no end, a God who knows no lack, no brokenness. This is a God who's moved by our worship. Lastly, it's not just your situation that will be changed and God's heart that will be moved, but also you. As a worshiper, you will be changed. Because once you come, once you see, once you adore, once you declare, there is no way that you're going to leave the same person that you were before. When you come into contact with God, you have to be changed. There's no way that you're going to leave the same person. I I forget, uh, I think it was like John Piper or some other writer who said, if you were to come into collision with a 14-wheeler truck, right? Like, you would look very different, to say the least. Imagine it's not a 14-wheeler truck, but it's the Yahweh, the living God, God of all glory, of all praise, of all honor. You're going to look different, much more than if you got run over a 14-wheeler truck. You will be changed. There's no way that you will not change when you are in God's presence second corinthians three eighteen. it says it this way we all with unveiled face we are seeing him face to face with unveiled face beholding the glory of the lord are being transformed into the same image the same image being god we are transformed into the same image from one degree of degree of glory to another From glory to glory, we with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, we become more and more like the God that we worship. We go from one degree of glory to another. And so this is the reason why we worship. Sometimes when we want to see changes in our lives, we think, okay, I need a 10-step plan, which are good. You know, a 10-step plan is very good. But often what we are forgetting is that our flesh is very weak. Our flesh is very weak. My my commitment to man-made plans, very, very weak. My, you know, my commitment to my New Year's resolutions lasts like what? 
three days tops, five days and good years, something like that. We are very weak, just pure self-motivation and self-discipline and grit is not going to get us there. It's not going to have the power that love only has to displace sin in our lives, to displace darkness in our lives and have us geared more and more towards God's marvelous light. It is love. It is worship. It is adoration. It is declaration. So this is Jesus's call and invitation to the apostle John and also to us today through revelation four. Jesus is saying, come up here, John, come up here. David, come up here, Lydia. Come up here. Let me show you who I really am. Let me remind you that even though you feel weak and broken and forgotten at the bottom of a mining shaft right now, there's still one who is worthy of your worship. There's still one who's seated on the throne. He's not pacing back and forth, wringing his hands in anxiety, like, oh no, what's going to happen to John? This is a being who is seated on the throne, unmoved by the circumstances that often shake us so much. He's still ruling and reigning from his throne, and he is still holy, holy, holy. When John feels like, I'm at the mercy of the Roman empire. I'm at the mercy of the Roman emperor. This is God saying Rome is not as big as you think it is. There's still one who is seated on the throne and his name is holy, holy, holy. Long after your days on earth end, long after your exile in Patmos ends, long after this empire called Rome it ends, there will be one who remains. There will be one who will be enthroned in the praises of generations to come. There will be one who is ancient of days, whose name will outlast every ruler and whose kingdom will outlast every empire. This is the God that we worship. This is the God that we come and approach And see, we adore, and we declare, and we're transformed by. It's like God takes this poor, old, tired, yet worshiping man in his 80s called John. And he reminds him that no matter what is happening in his life, and also no matter what will come in days to come, as we see in the the rest of the book of Revelation, at the center of it all, in the midst of our chaos, Our God still reigns. Our God is still sovereign. Our God holds all power and all might in his hands. He is the God who receives worship and glory day and night from around the throne. And he will receive all the worship and honor and praise from every tongue and every tribe from generation to generation. Now, I'm going to end with this as I ask the praise team to come back up. And we're going to end today with, you know, a time of extended worship. Not super extended, you know, don't go too crazy. But we'll go into a time of worship. And this is what I want us to meditate on as we go into a time of responding through worship. There is gospel grace for us to worship. There is gospel grace 
for us to worship. For the Apostle Paul, I mean, Apostle John, to even have a glimpse of this scene unfolding in heaven is truly remarkable. God didn't owe him anything. He's still a lowly man, just like you and I, and yet we see that God invites him and he beckons him into the throne room of heaven. We see at the beginning of the passage that there's an open door in heaven and the voice of Jesus from Revelation 1 extends to him the most incredible of all invitations. The God who was previously veiled behind the curtain of the Holy of Holies. The God who cannot be approached for he is unapproachable light. The God who is Yahweh, ancient of days. He is the God who extends this incredible invitation. Come up here. And it is Jesus' voice that beckons us to come up here even today. To transcend our earthly lives, our earthly circumstances, and to come up to where he is. It isn't just that, but Jesus is the open door. Jesus is the way to the Father. He is the voice that instead of saying, stay away, you're unholy, you're desecrated, you're sinful, you cannot stand before a God who's holy, holy, holy. It's this voice of grace that sends, come up here. I will show you things you've never seen before. I will bring you to a place that you've never been before. I'll bring you to where you never thought you'd find yourself before the presence of a God of unapproachable light. The one before whom devils tremble and angels worship. The one who was and is and is to come. You can stand in the presence of holiness now. You can boldly approach this throne of grace. You have been bought and paid for by the blood of a lamb. You've been brought out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This is what Jesus Christ has done for you and I. What Jesus paid for isn't just for you and I to not go to hell. It's so much more than that. It's about about saving us out of darkness and now into his marvelous light. Saving us out of hell and now into the place of worship. Into encounter with a living God. Into marvel and beauty and awe for many of us most of our life changing moments have happened during a time of worship some of our most intimate and transformative moments have happened when we look beyond ourselves and we fix our eyes on God and we begin to declare who he is and even us here today you know when we gather on Sundays for service or when we gather even for you know, K1 on Thursdays is not just a collection of bodies coming together to do a collective activity. We are all huddling around the centerpiece of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are boldly drawing close by the blood of the Lamb to someone we are unworthy to approach. We are feasting our eyes and bearing our hearts to the only one who deserves everything that we have. And we are in faith 
declaring his praises. We're holding on to his word. And we will see how that will change everything.